Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is August the 3rd, 2017, and this is episode 2057 of the Survival Podcast. And it's a Thursday, that means it's time for the listener call show of the week. This is where you pick up your phone and you mash the numbers. 866-65-THINK, 866-65-T-H-I-N-K. You call that number, you're not going to hear, Hi, caller, this is Jack, you're on the air. Because this is a podcast, this is not your daddy's radio show. Okay, you're not driving in traffic and I'm talking about traffic reports. This is a pre-recorded show, it's been that way for over nine years now. Uh, so if you're new to the show, now you know, and if you're old to the show, you're like, why are you telling me this? I already knew. Anyway. So, you leave your message, and I will try to get you on the air. Uh, it will come to me through the magic of the interwebs, actually attached as an attachment to an email. That's a pretty cool service I use. If you ever want to use a service like this yourself or something, it's pretty cool. It's called Call8. I've been using it one way or another for almost 20 years now. The website is Call8, K-A-L-L, number 8.com. You can check them out and learn more. Not really a sponsor or anything, just occasionally I'm asked about the service that I use. Anyway, so... What are we going to be talking about today? We're going to talk about what to do with a surplus of cardboard, and I kind of feel an Amazon shopper thing going on here, because I understand that. If I can get it on Amazon for the same price or less than I can get it in store, I do not leave the freaking house to get stuff and go to stores and deal with people anymore. Uh, what makes more sense when a crime is committed, punishment or restitution? And to a specific situation we'll talk about. We'll talk about planting a tree noise screen today. We'll talk about clay soil and to swell or not to swell. That is the question. If you don't know what a swale is, I'll tell you when we talk about it. And then harvesting and transplanting wild saplings. It's basically free trees. How do we do that? How do we go about it? How do we select the right ones, etc.? We're going to talk more about investing for children and investing in children is the way I prefer. Guy calls in with some of the things he's doing, following up to the piece I did on this last week. I think it's a great call, so I'm going to play it. And all about harvesting rainwater to drink, to drink or not to drink. That is also a question. We will cover all of that and more today at the Survival Podcast. However, first, we have to pay some bills, so let's hear from our two sponsors of the day. Hey guys, if you're like me, you want the best quality water for yourself and your family, this is why I've used a Berkey water filter for over six years in my own home. But if you're going to get a Berkey, or parts for one you already have, you should deal with the best. And that's Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason. There's only one official Berkey Guy, and you can only find him at his website at directive21.com. Again, directive, the number's 21 and a dot com. Let me ask you a question. Do you have a favorite knife, a special knife, one you may hand down to a son or a daughter? How cool would it be if you had such a knife that you actually made yourself? With KnifeKits.com as your partner, you can do it. Check out the hundreds of options they have along with all the help you would need from books and DVDs to develop the skill of knife making. You can learn more at KnifeKits.com. And before we get to your calls, let's take a little journey through history to the year that was. This is the year that was the year 37 A.D. as we take our walk through history together. I have today from Southpaw Ben at TSPWiki.com, Antioch Shaken. This year, on April 9th, the city of Antioch will suffer from an earthquake that will destroy much of the city. Emperor Caligula sends two senators there to report on the condition of the city. My take by Southpaw Ben, Antioch during this time appears to have been 
uh, a big earthquake risk during the reign of Claudius, the successor Caligula. Antioch was also hit by a major earthquake, so it's been hit many times. Um, and you know, at the time, you're talking about all the buildings are built out of basically cut and stacked stone. So when an earthquake hits, big giant heavy things fall on people, crush them, death, mayhem. That's uh, probably a better time to be alive during an earthquake today than it was at the time we know more about building, even though they were pretty good engineers. Uh, and then by David Verne, we have something called How Long Will the Honeymoon Last? In March of this year, a report comes to Rome of Tiberius dying from an illness. The people are beginning to celebrate when a second message arrives saying that Tiberius didn't die and was recovering. Then a third report came from the Praetorian prefect Marco, who stated the second report was a fake and Tiberius was actually dead. Marco himself had gone to confirm the emperor's death, and upon seeing Tiberius weak but recovering, smothered him with a pillow. Tiberius died at age 77 after ruling the empire for 23 years. The people called for no public funeral for Tiberius and demanded his body be thrown into the Tiber River. A formal funeral was held, but he wasn't deified by the sentinel like Augustus had been. Tiberius will stated that Caligula, who is currently 25, would rule along with another of Tiberius' grandsons, Gumilius. But Gumilius was written out of the will and killed later this year. Caligula starts his reign by canceling the treason trials and burning all evidence in a massive bonfire, along with ordering the burial of bodies left in the streets. He, is given, he also gives bonuses to soldiers, gave tax cuts, and threw lavish games. Caligula himself indulges in wine, women, and song. The first few months of his reign went great, but it wouldn't last. Caligula fell in oct ill in October, but recovers. It was believed by ancient historians to be the beginning of Caligula's madness. Several senators had made promises to Jupiter, begging for the god to take their lives instead of the emperors. When Caligula heard about this, he forced them to commit suicide. My take by David Verne. Tiberius will be remembered as a cruel, paranoid, debauched, and miserly tyrant. His last decade in power saw him abandon Rome and stay hidden in his villa in the Isle of Capri. He was a good administrator and will leave the treasury overflowing. It will be interesting to see how fast Caligula blows through that reserve. I don't think Caligula's sickness was the cause of his madness, but it makes a convenient dividing line between Caligula, who, who led the people of Rome, lined the streets 20 miles out to sea, to the insane hedonistic madman who has just inherited the throne. Yeah, the guy is nuts. Caligula's nuts. Um, I do think there is a potential throughout this time in history when some of these guys go completely nuts that neurosyphilis is the issue. And an illness and then the onset of something like that, maybe. Because syphilis usually comes and then it goes latent and neurosyphilis is something usually happens a lot later in life than Caligula going nuts. Um, I think Caligula was a narcissist with an obsession to be loved by the people. I think that's really what his issue was. He wanted to be loved by the people. And he's like a crazy parent that when he doesn't get what he wants, he lashes out in anger and then still expects that they will love him. And he'll spend money, he'll piss away the treasury, whatever. But this is also another example of socialism. Um, the problem with socialism is sooner or later you run out of other people's money. See, the government didn't have any money. All the money was stolen money. I mean, T Tiberius was pretty good at stealing money and managing it. So what Caligula decided to do is we'll just give it back. Well, then the problem becomes the pie problem. This is the real problem when governments start giving shit out. So if I came over to your house today and I brought you a pie, 
you'd be like, dude, thanks for the pie. And then if I came tomorrow and brought you a pie, I'd be like, dude, you really don't need to bring me a pie, but thank you. And if I brought you a pie, like, let's say instead of every day where it get kind of creepy, right? But, like, every week I come visit you on Saturday and bring you a pie. And, like, you know, three or four weeks into this, you'd be like, hey, man, look, I really don't have to have this pie, but thanks. And if I didn't bring you one, like, on the fourth or fifth week, you'd be like, where's my pie? Right? But you'd be like, oh, you'd be okay with it. You'd be like, yeah, you know, like I said, you don't have to always do it. But let's say I brought you a pie every week for a year, 52 weeks in a row. And I come up to on the week 53, and I come to visit you, and I don't have a pie. You know, you're going to be like, hey, jerk, where's my pie? By now, it's part of your, your household's food budget, right? Like, you plan around the pie, and now it's gone. Well, if you're stealing money to pay for stuff, you have to balance that. Because when you can no longer steal enough to pay for it, the people now say, where's my pie, jerks? And then, of course, the skilled administrator says, it's the rich people that don't want to pay their fair share. At this time, you just started whacking people. And we'll see a lot of that in the future. So the tactics change, but the economics are largely the same. All right, folks, let me remind you that the main way that you can support the work that we do here at the Survival Podcast is by joining the Member Support Brigade, or MSB for short. And you hear me talk all the time about the over 60 discounts that you get, but let me tell you some of the other things you get. How about nine free ebooks, including Planting Trees the Low-Cost Easy Way, How to Build Top Bar Beehives, Basics of Sprouting, Building an EPAC Kit, Getting Your Household in Order, Building a Traditional Clay Oven, Building Aquaponics Systems, Secrets of Ballistic Strikings, and Squanto's Garden. All of those are free ebooks that you get only as an MSB member. You can also download MP4 versions of many of our YouTube videos. You get zip files of every episode of TSP ever produced. And how about videos of the workshops here at Nine Mile Farm that we do in the spring and the fall? All of that and more available as an MSB member. You can sign up for as little as five bucks a month to give it a shot or $50 a year. That comes out to 18.3 cents an episode. And with that, let's go ahead and take the first call today. We have a call today on a surplus of cardboard. Hey, Jack. This is David from Denver again. My question is, what do I do with these extra cardboard boxes I'm getting? I recognize that, you know, a lot of people have recycling and maybe use cardboard boxes for other purposes. And I'm wondering if you have any unique ideas of things to do around the house or in the garden with them, uh, since there's not really recycling in my area currently. I appreciate it. Thanks. So I have to say that we end up having to deal with a lot more cardboard than we used to, and the primary reason is a little website called Amazon.com. Uh, and I bet you kind of that's what the guy didn't say it, but, you know, like all this cardboard I'm dealing with now, like so this didn't used to be an issue and now it is. And it's one of those things about a service like Amazon that is a bit, you know, from an environmental standpoint, a bit concerning. Because every single item comes in a box in a box usually, right? So you end up with multiple, sometimes a box in a box in a box, uh, and all types of other packaging, and you end up with all this stuff that's waste. Uh, if you don't have an immediate use for it, obviously the best course of action is recycling. I know a lot of people say they don't have recycling in their area, but generally speaking, if you look around, maybe you have recycling within 20 miles or so, someplace you can get rid of the stuff. And um, one of the ways to make that worth doing is, like, the best course, and I can't 
say that we always do it. I just had a bunch of boxes. I'm like, we'll probably burn before I even break them down because I bought these things that go in my fish tank, and it was boxes and boxes and boxes to keep stuff from breaking. And um, But it's to break them down. You know, cut the tape, break them down flat. It's amazing how little space even 40 or 50 boxes take up if they're all broken down. So that's one thing that you can do. And then once they're broke down, if you have no other use for them, then, you know, if you have a pickup truck or something, it's a lot easier to maybe once a month or once every two months fill the back up and take them in for recycling. And some places you can actually get a little bit of money for it, maybe at least enough to pay for the gas and feel that you've done the right thing from an environmental standpoint, you know, because uh, you've gotten that resource now in, in recycling. The best homestead use for cardboard that I know of is sheet mulching. You lay down a couple layers of cardboard, you soak it really through, and then you put your compost and your, your wood mulch on top of it, and you can literally terraform an entire piece of property with nothing but mulching cardboard. It, it is amazing what that will do, uh, especially if, like, when we go to put that cardboard down, if we spread out a little bit of dry molasses... Then we put that cardboard down and wet it. We put some compost on top of the cardboard. We spray some more dry molasses on it, and then we heavily mulch it. Like Really, I think like the best course then is like a layer of straw, a little more dried molasses, and then a, another layer of compost, a little more dry molasses, and then a great thick layer of wood chips. And we water that in well. And do, if you do nothing with that, it, it, you know, six months later, if you go to plant something in it, it will blow you away what it looks like you know, underneath that mulch. And you'll see almost no weeds. The, the combination of the, uh, the inoculation that comes from the compost along with feeding the soil microbes, and if you really want to gild the lily with that, you know, hit it with some mycorrhizal fungi inoculation when you do it, both at the soil level and in, like, right before you add the wood chips so they'll inoculate the wood chips at the bottom. Or, you know, mushrooms, if you're in the right climate where it's going to stay moist on its own, like, uh, like uh, king oyster or uh, kingstrophoria, or just regular oyster, those will generally handle even quite a bit of sun if it's a moist climate, right? That is just going to build amazing soil. Even if you don't get mushrooms, the mycorrhizal activity below the soil is going to be phenomenal what it will do for you. Um, the other option is to come up with some kind of a like industrial-level shredder uh, and, it, and, and use it and mix it with greens and compost it. It's a carbon. It, it, basically, it's wood pulp. Uh, so you you know you need a, a lot of nitro or quite a bit of nitrogen to go with that, but generally you can do even like you know like five to one, so one part nitrogen, five part carbon. You'll still get a pretty good uh, bit of fuel there to break that stuff down and turn it into compost. Uh, other than that, I'll go to group think here. Like if you have a surplus of cardboard and it's not one of the th three things I just suggested, which is finding a place to recycle it, sheet mulching, composting. What else can you do with an ass load of cardboard? Uh, but again, I'm going to go back to break those boxes down immediately, find a place to store them. Because even if you're doing sheet mulching or whatever, yeah, you get a lot of boxes, but you know, if you get four or five boxes a week, that doesn't really sheet mulch much. right? So you might have to save it up for like a month. So find a place and get into that practice of breaking them down. I guess the other thing you can do is just simply burn it. Uh, you know, When I was a kid, um, now we pay for garbage too, but we paid for our garbage and we paid like by how much we had. Um, in rural Pennsylvania. So the, 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 the challenge was to put as little out to the garbage as possible every week. And we had a burn barrel, and anything that was burnable that wasn't usable in some other way went in that burn barrel. And uh, about once, once every six months, I, I, I cleaned it out. 
And uh, the ash was just basically potash. It's a good fertilizer. We made sure that we didn't burn anything in there that would be considered toxic. We didn't burn plastic or things like that in that, uh, or rubber or things like that. Um, once I threw a uh, an almost empty aerosol can in and see what would happen, it made a very loud explosion, and I got in a great deal of trouble for it. So I, I don't recommend replicating that. Anyway, with that, let's go ahead and uh, take another one. Hello, Jack. This is Daniel. I'm going to try to articulate this as it's kind of a fluid situation. Question is, to prosecute or not prosecute? Long story short, just got off the boat five and a half months offshore, uh, checked into a hotel, and let me tell you, I won the Dumbass Award. Stopped at a hotel, left my door propped open slightly, had my wallet ripped off. Cost me my cash, a couple of hundred bucks, no big deal. Sleeping with my hand on a loaded 357. So, you know, fortunately there were no fatalities involved or, or incidents. Found my wallet, left the cash on the other side of the fence, checked the security tape, saw the woman that ripped it off. Local city police were called. They came out. Everything's fine. Police come back and ask me if I want to press charges. I don't know. Uh, don't see any sense in locking somebody in a cage. Would prefer restitution, but things are, you know, kind of kind of odd because if, for instance, where I live, if a 16-year-old man or 16-year-old boy has sex with a 15-year-old girl. The state is going to take that up and prosecute him as a rapist. So I don't even know why they're asking if I want to prosecute or not. Seems kind of odd. Anyway, I hope you weigh in on this. And like I say, everything worked out for the best so far as, you know, like I say, I win the dumbass award for the day. But I'll take my licks, you know. Thank you. Well, uh, first of all, you guys know before I answer this, the caller did call back and basically confirm what I had already inferred from this call. That they, The reason they found this girl so easily is the people at the hotel were like, we know who she is. And the cops were like, we know she, who she is. And she does this shit all the time. This is her M.O. Like slipping in the in, in hotel room, stealing some money, and, and you know that's how she's basically making a living around here. With that, I part of me very much is to the point of I would prosecute. Now, I'm going to get to the whole restitution prosecution thing here in a second because I look at it this way. Okay, you made a dumbass mistake, and it was pretty easy for you to absorb losing a couple hundred bucks. The next person that stays in that motel that loses a couple hundred bucks, it could drastically alter their life. It might be their last couple hundred bucks. They might be on the way somewhere where they're depending on that money to get somewhere, etc. And she might break into the wrong place and get her head blown off. Right, So she might be better off in jail for a little while thinking about this than getting shot. Here's the other side of this, though. Clearly, being arrested and thrown in, 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 in like you know county jail for petty theft, etc., is not working for this person. And I guess my question would be, if I had you live on the air, is, is restitution an option? Is the state actually saying to you, we can enforce her paying you back. And if that's the case, I would I would start leaning toward that. I've never really heard of that very often. It's actually something I'd very much like to see come to our legal system. It would be a step in the direction of, dare I say it, anarchy. 
In an anarchist voluntary system, a criminal has to have a victim, and the most important thing in the rules, because remember there are rules, just not rulers, in an anarchist system, is making the victim whole again if possible. And then there's also the, you know, also preventing additional crime. Now I think that the criminal justice system in our country is not very good at preventing additional crime, but it's better than nothing. I'll, I'll, you know, I'll give them that. Like I don't want to go to jail. So there's certain things I might do that I won't do because I don't want to go to jail. Now none of those things actually have victims in them, but I'll admit when I was a younger, less um, astute individual, there might have been some that did. You know, um, and you grow old and you get a little wiser and think about that as we get to the end of today's show with today's song. Um, but the problem that we have is these types of crimes, generally these people do 30, 45 days in jail or less, even when they've been multiple, multiple times, and they've gotten to the point where they don't really care anymore. If I go to jail, I go to jail. And they're just not going to get locked up long term for shit like this. They're just not. No matter how much they do of it, they're not. Now, here's the issue with restitution. For restitution to be effective, it has to be significantly more than was taken. And what I mean by that is, like, if, if me stealing $200 from you, the only punishment I have to worry about is I have to give the $200 back. Like, what is my real incentive if I'm a dishonest person to not steal? But if I steal $200 from you and it's going to cost me five times, which is a, in some countries, like, this actually is a thing. Like, it is the first go-to. It's not that unheard of uh, as a thing. In some countries, there's even some level of restitution available for crimes that we would think of as capital crimes. If the family's willing to accept it from the other family and the person that did it, Okay. Um, won't get deeply into that, but just say that like like this is not unheard of that there there would be something like this. I just don't know much about it in our criminal justice system. I've talked to people that are you know recovering uh, members of the uh, of, of the club of of behind bars who said they have you know restitution to pay. But when I talk to them further about that, like well who gets it? Well the state. It's not like it goes back like if they stole somebody's shit, it doesn't go to them. It goes to the state to basically pay for their probation, parole, housing, etc. So, I, I, I'm just not aware of this. But if it's available, I might take that route. Again, my concern is, what about the next person? What about the next person who can't afford, because this is not a victimless crime. You know, if, if this person was caught with some drugs on them and that was their entire crime, I mean, I don't want that person prosecuted in any way. But this was a crime with a victim that has the potential to turn lethal. This could actually be worse for her than it could be for the victim in some situations. You know, I, I, I can see a lot of bad happening here. But it, it kind of brings up the case that I think our criminal justice system does need to move toward restitution and restitution to the victim of a crime. And the, the further we move in that direction the further away we automatically will see ourselves move from victimless crimes. So if there's to be restitution as the first course of action, and this person's crime is they, they grew four marijuana plants in their garage, who do they pay restitution to? Who do they harm? And it starts to change the psychology, because trust me, a lot of these victimless crimes, 
that are crimes today and enforceable as crimes are not simply that way because the state says so. It's the psychology of the public at large that allows it to be. When enough people simply feel, hey, look, we shouldn't be doing shit to anybody for growing or possessing a plant, trust me, it won't happen anymore. And I'm not just talking about decriminalization and people can have an ounce and shit like that or having legalized dispensers. I mean, like, if you got to the point where everybody kind of just really thought about this and went, wait a minute, wait a minute. You're telling me that a person who puts a seed into a piece, a pot of dirt and grows it and then does something with it is going to be prosecuted in a way they might go to prison because it's intended to distribute, etc., right? It's not just simple possession. Wait a minute, that doesn't sound right. And if you have a, a vast majority of people that believe that's wrong, it won't be a crime anymore. Because it will be absolutely impossible to convict and jury nullification will happen by, by itself. It's a big part of what brought down prohibition. You know, the prohibition against alcohol. They couldn't get convictions. Well, we believe he did it. I was there drinking hooch that night, so I think I'm going to vote not guilty. I mean, that shit happened. That, that's really what, what broke prohibition is the inability to enforce the law. Because you, you, you're guaranteed a jury trial. And a judge might do what the law says by the book, but a jury's going to do what a jury actually feels needs to be done. It happens all the time, sometimes for good, sometimes for, for bad. But if we move toward restitution, we start to move in that direction. But the other thing is, like, it has to hurt. If you steal a thousand bucks from somebody, I think minimum you owe them five grand. You've altered their life in ways that can't be put back. I mean, really, think about it. Like, if you steal $1,000 from somebody, and they had something they were going to do with that money, like go on a vacation, and now because you took their money, they can't go on vacation, how do you restitute that vacation that they didn't get to take? If they had that money put aside because they were going to put their child in some kind of a camp, and the kid doesn't get to go. Right, Something in your life changes when somebody takes your stuff. Plus there's a feeling of being violated. Like, what's that worth? I think it's five to ten times. I don't know what the condition is here. In the end, you have to do some soul searching and make a choice yourself. But I'd like to hear back from you. Is the state asking you, do you want restitution? Do you want her to have to pay your money back? If that's the case, I'd like to know more about that because I think that's something that is useful in our system if it's going to be there. Let's, uh, let's take another one. Hi, Jack. This is Rob in north-central Wisconsin with a question about uh, natural sound barrier fencing for around my house. Background, uh, we bought a small homestead a couple of years ago and thought we could put up the noise from the state highway that runs, you know, 100 yards in front of my house. But now we want to try to find a way to limit that noise coming in that gets to the house and, you know, is annoying and loud. So we thought of planting arborvitae trees. Uh, it's very common in this area, but uh, I'm not sure that that's the best way to go because it'd have to be densely packed. I wonder if you could suggest some sort of uh, planting or plants or trees or something that would grow quickly uh, and kind of cut down that sound that's coming from the highway. Thanks for all you do, Jack. Have a great day. Bye. Okay, so I'm going to not worry one bit about edibles, and obviously you could interplant or interspersonally plant fruit trees, nut trees, etc., within any kind of a, a evergreen forest-based system, which is really what you're talking about here. So I had to look up Abravite tree. I didn't know what the hell that was. Um, but they're basically an ornamental and very hardy uh, evergreen 
that grows kind of like with branches all the way to the ground, and it kind of comes up to a point. Uh, they're used extensively in landscaping. Like when you see like expensive landscape McMansions with a bunch of you know really tall cylindrical evergreens, mostly it's them. They're also kind of expensive. They're about sixteen dollars a piece. Um, and, and my issue with them is they are really thin. So you got to put a lot of them in to be able to do what you want to do. I think using evergreens is a fantastic idea. They are hardy, and if those trees do well there, then probably spruce and fir trees would do well there. And, you know, you do have the ability to almost put yourself a little Christmas tree farm in. At 100 yards, you could do some spacing and make some of these things eventually harvestable and replantable and stuff like that. And there's a little bit of money to be made there probably locally selling those things or harvesting, you know, one a year for yourself for a number of years or something and leaving the majority of them in place to grow. The reason I suggest looking at fir and spruce is I just, you know, and there's other places to check. Um, Lawyer's Nursery would be another place to check. But just on a lark, I jumped over to one of my favorite nurseries to buy from, uh, to buy like large amounts of, of small, you know, saplings and stuff like that, Coldstream Farm. And their spruce and fir trees run three to four bucks a piece. Now they're smaller trees, but they're gonna grow really, really fast. So I, I just would say, like, even if you use these abrovites or whatever, maybe you put them, you know, and then you kind of build in and fill in more with spruce and fir. Maybe because they grow so fast and so tall, depending on your solar aspect, you either plant them all the way out by the road and then bring fir in behind it. Or since they're going to grow faster and taller in shade, maybe you pull them back from the road and then you advance spruce and fir out to the road. And another thing that I would look at is as you're spacing your trees, eventually, sure, you want them to kind of form a thicket. But as they're growing, they're probably not all going to touch and they're not going to really be as dense as you want. You have to leave them room to expand. Think about things like a firearm silencer. You want to create baffling. So, like, you have your first row... Your trees are spaced at a certain spacing. Your second row, space them similar, but put each tree in the center of the first tree's row. So you have, like if you say position one and two, your third tree is back to the second row and right in the middle between them. So you create kind of the sound baffling, multi-layered system. And I might do something like that and then come back even further. Because again, you got a lot to work with out there. Why cut grass out there? You know, if you want to have kind of a forest feel to your place, so maybe you do a row of your abrovites if you really want to, or you just do interspersed spruce and fir, and then come back yet another layer and plant a row of black locust. So you got a hardwood now going in there, and you can get those for, you know, depending on how many you need and how big you want them to be, like 50 cents a piece. And maybe you go and, you know, in between your evergreens... Throw in something there like uh, autumn olive. It's good for wildlife. It will be very thicket-like. It'll create habitat, and it'll definitely create kind of this baffling, multi-layered system. And to me, that's better than a bunch of these like ornamental, because I don't actually think they'll work that good. I think they'll make a pretty good visible screen, but I think they'll look very artificial. Just looking at just like a row of those just looks very artificial. It looks like everybody else. It, 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 it yells property line, it yells there's people back here, but if you kind of do like a spruce and fir, hardwood, maybe even some pine thicket of mixed trees, 
And instead of trying to do a single layer or a double layer, maybe you occupy, you know, a hundred yards out to the thing. So, I mean, if you wanted open space, if you even did a 25 yard wide belt of all these trees, you'd have a beautiful place. And it would look gorgeous from your house instead of looking at that road. It would be very effective at stopping, you know, traffic noise and stuff like that. And if you ever did decide you want to go into edibles and stuff like that, it's going to form a really great bio barrier from like the icky gick that comes off your road. And then you begin planting your trees that are like your apples and your pears and stuff like that, more open savanna. So you have this like thicket belt, right? And that means no mowing. Like once that stuff comes in, you're not mowing, you're not weed eating. You know, you, 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 if there's a fence out there, you do need to leave kind of a maintenance belt where maybe like it's just wide enough that if you have a lawn tractor, you can drive it through there, right, and drive around that perimeter to keep stuff off your fence. If it's not fenced, I wouldn't even worry about it. Let that shit just go all the way to the street and just keep it open for your driveway and let it almost become a natural living fence. And again, you could intersperse anything else you want in there that'll probably do pretty well for you. But if you did a spruce and fir uh, setup, if you wanted an edible, a great one to do just inside would be a row of blueberry bushes because they'll they'll you know benefit highly from all those needles and the acidic qualities that they lend to your soil. So those are some different ideas. Hope that helps. If you have any more questions on that, more details for me, give me a call back. But I would definitely look into things like spruce, fir pine, and other trees that you can buy for a fraction of the cost, I'd rather have more of those in a wider belt than a thin belt of very expensive trees that, while hardy, I just don't think they look that good. Let's let's take another one. Hey, Jack. This is Jesse out of Southeast Iowa. I had a question for about swales for you. Um, in my part of the state, we tend to be a bit more wetter. Uh, ironically, we're in a drought right now, 70 days of no rain. And our soil types tend to be white oak clay soil. So being clay, it takes a while for water to be absorbed, but it takes a while for water to drain off and to, you know, uh, be workable, you know. And I want to do a small food forest project on a hillside about two acres size. I want to plant like pecans, black walnuts, chestnuts, and roni berries on this hillside. And I thought, you know, be perfect to plant them along a swale and let that swale uh, hold out water to your water table. I understand the concept works. But my question is, being that we tend to be more water, and we tend to get not general rains, but like piss-counting rains, and in the past couple of years, besides this year, we've had abnormal amount of rainfall, like in 2015, we had 32 inches, and this clay soil type could that water not absorb as well. Uh, sorry for all the noise. I'm on a bad road. Anyway, could that soil not absorb that water as well and not as productively and maybe become counterproductive and start to cause, like, rot and harmful funguses and junk in my tree system, you know, my tree roots, my food forest system, then actually is helpful. I mean, I understand, like, where you're in Texas, it makes sense to have swales because you're more arid and it, it's more functional and you can help hold out water. And, you know, I understand, like, you know, Mark Shepard in Wisconsin, you know, he's got swales all over his place and... But I'm not familiar with his climate. I don't know what kind of um, water table and water levels he has for his rainfall throughout the year. I don't know. But I'm just curious if swales could ever be counterproductive in my situation. You know, I, I, want, I want to do this project right. I want to make it functional as possible and just to be successful with it, good sir. So, anyway, thanks for your time, Jack. I appreciate it. And we'll catch you later, good sir. Okay, so 
I'm not going to tell you to do this or not to do this. I'm going to give you some things to think about. The first is a lot of people say, well, I have clay soil and it holds a lot of water and I have watery areas and marshy areas and it sits around and it gets stagnant and stuff, so swells would make it worse. Most of the time, here's the big thing with a giant if, I mean six-foot-tall IF, not if done properly with well-thought-out design. It would actually make the situation better. Here's why. If you have sloping terrain, inevitably if you have clay soil, the water it becomes it won't go in well and it starts flowing. And it doesn't flow evenly. It, it flows from ridge to valley. And when you see a big mountain, it's really easy to look and go, that's a ridge, that's a valley, right? That's a spur and that's a, a hollow, right? Maybe it's a better way to think about it. Um, but that's what happens. So the water flows off of the elevation in all directions and concentrates in the valleys. If you look at your, if you put your hand and make like a fist and then look at it like you're going to punch yourself in the face and you think of that being like contours of the land and your, the space between your fingers is valleys and then you got your spurs. So you got your spurs and your hollows right there and water starts coming down your hand. It's going to concentrate in those lines. And as it gets lower and lower to where the slope is less, that's where you're just going to pool, and you're, you're taking all of that catchment and you're pushing it to pool in one location. Well, what happens when we run a swale across that system? Well, then we spread the water out. We spread the water out, we hold it in the swale, and we infiltrate it into the soil, and the soil becomes more and more infiltrated over time, and we got to put lots of trees in if we're going to do this. Because those trees get down into that clay and they open up pathways. Trees with deep tap roots, like let's say pecans, right, have no problem bulldozing through clay. I mean, if they can find a crack in a rock, they'll shove it, a tap root into there. So clay, no matter how hard you think it is, a tree will bulldoze down into that. And you start putting lots of root systems into that clay. And that's why if you've ever been to a place like that's kind of foresty, but it's clay soil, and like there'll be a field next to the forest, and it rains, and it's just this, the field is just slick and compacted and nasty, and you walk into the forest, it's like walking on a sponge. It's those tree roots and all the detritus that comes down from those trees, right? That, that's what's built that sponge that can now hold the water instead of having it sit on top of it. So swales can be a dynamite absolute dynamite strategy in a clay soil environment. Additionally, if you have clay, then you have an incredible opportunity to put in dams, even just small ponds. So we can have swales, and then we can put, you know, at the end of that, a pond. It doesn't have to be a big pond. I'm talking about something that, you know, a decent-sized bulldozer or excavator could do in a day, where if you get a good, competent operator, you could have them on your property for oh, I don't know, a week and put in 20, you know, 20 swales in, in 10 ponds. If they're really good and they've done it before and they really know what they're doing, but even if it's, if it's five and, and four, it's still a significant amount of water. Now that water that was running down the hill, pooling it all, it's not only spread out by the swales, but a huge piece of it goes into a hole we call a pond and is reserved. And, I mean, if you want a place to put in ponds, you want a place with as much clay as you can get. So that's valuable too. That said, if it rains a lot, and in general, people grow trees without irrigation there, and you just mulch and plant trees, everything will probably be fine. And you probably don't, there's the important word, you probably don't need swales. 
It doesn't mean they couldn't be useful. It means you don't need them to achieve your objective. So what I think you really need to look at is what is your totality of your objective? And do these things make sense for you? Because it might be that what makes the most sense, that's very inexpensive, is to find somebody with a decent tractor and a two or three bottom plow, mark contours and put in small pathway swales with a plow, like we did at Elijah's Spring. And then you plant just to the downside of those, and yeah, you get the water in there and all, but if you have some steep slope, what that does is it cuts down erosion, it spreads the water out, right? You can put a lot of them in really, really fast. You know, it depends on how, how pretty you want them to be is how much work they are after you've done it. But I mean, usually two passes with that plow, both in the, in the same furrow, pushing the dirt in the same spot, is all that it takes, and you have this nice little path that's like a couple feet wide. Now, what's, what's advantageous about that? If you're going to have a food forest on slope, you're going to want to be able to harvest and walk and do maintenance. Well, now you have a pathway. You also have a water spread. So now we're spreading the water evenly across the entire slope. So I think you really need to take a much deeper look at this. And, and as I say all the time, do not put swales in just to have swales. This is a huge, huge mistake. This is a major design element in a project. If you don't know exactly why you're doing it and what it's giving you, don't. Don't. Right? Just don't do it. And that doesn't mean you'd be afraid of it. But it means really think about it and what the design is. And what are all your other options? Is it really steep? Probably a good place to swale if you do it right. Because you bring the side of the mountain down if you do it wrong. Okay? If it's semi-steep, still, yeah, you know. If it's really flat, maybe, maybe not. It depends. What's your rainfall? What's your 100-year rain event? I mean, this is why things like PDCs and Earthworks courses make a lot of sense. They help you have a better fundamental understanding of what you're doing. Do you want ponds? If you want ponds and you're willing to make the investment and you have clay soil, I would say you really want to make sure you get your overflow management right because you create a lot of erosion problems if you don't. But if you want ponds in clay, you should be putting in swales because it will make your ponds so much more resilient. I see these little ponds that people put in in Texas. You go east of me instead of west where it's all rock like I am. You go just to the east. It's black clay. It's so easy to put a pond in. You literally dig a hole where there's any catchment, and you run the machine back and forth to compact it. No keyway, no nothing, and it fills up with water when it rains. They have them everywhere. They call them stock tanks. I'm sure they do in most of the rest of the country. You go to a place where there's like, you know, a guy's got 300 acres of cattle. He might have 50 of them. You know, they're quarter acre here, quarter acre there, smaller here, maybe a half acre, big one over there, all over the place. And you know what they look like? Not this year, because we've had a lot of summer rain, but what they look like most years by now, they're half empty. If they were interconnected with swales, you could use the swales as access, and those ponds will stay fuller more often because they'll be, they'll be charged up better. And they'll be, the whole land will actually begin to be charged up better. So you gotta take, a real design look at this and ask why you're doing what you're doing. But I wouldn't rule them out or in simply due to clay. Like that's It's almost immaterial. I've done swales in sand. I've done swales in clay. I've done swales in loam. 
There really isn't much else. And they've worked fantastic in all those situations. But you again, you have to ask the question, why am I doing this and what does it give me and what are my alternatives? I hope that helps. That's the most honest I can be with you with the limited information that I have. Let's take another one. This one is going to be on wild saplings. Lots of stuff on trees today. Hey, Jack. This is Matt from Southeast Texas. Uh, I got a question about transplanting uh, tree saplings. I live uh, in Southeast Texas on the Texas-Louisiana state line, pretty close to it outside a city called Beaumont. Uh, I have three acres out in the kind of middle of nowhere, and uh, around me, basically 365, or around the backside and the sides of my property is timberland. Timber company owns it, you know, thousands and thousands of acres. Well, uh, I'm thinking about maybe going going into that timberland kind of on our property line, and there's a lot of tree saplings, oak, uh, pine, you know, all, cedar, all kind of whatever different trees you, you you know you want because of whatever trees are there you got you know they're saplings they're you know one two foot tall and i'm thinking about taking and digging around root ball and transplanting them onto my property in strategic areas for shading and whatnot even though it's going to take a long time for them to grow up to maturity but i'm wondering if there's anything special i'll have to do i, I know i really it should be about the same dirt kind of a clay soil so I don't think I should have, you know, would have to, to mix in a lot of the soil where I'm actually going to be planting them like you would if you, you know, got it out of a bucket, you know, bought it out of a bucket kind of thing. But is there anything else I should do special, you know, when I go uh, to, to transplant them onto my property? Uh, the person who actually maintains uh, a lot of that area, I know, and he said it's fine for me to go do that. So I won't end it, you know, be in any kind of legal trouble. I've already checked into that. So, yeah, just wondering uh, what you think. All right, bye. Okay, so you certainly can harvest wild saplings. I'm going to tell you how to do it, and I'm going to tell you the good and the bad. Okay, so the best thing to do is wait until that tree is dormant if it's deciduous. So deciduous means that in the winter, the leaves fall off, and it goes to sleep, right? And you mentioned pines, too, so those are evergreens, so that's not going to happen. Still, probably the time that the deciduous trees are asleep is the best time to do the, the, the conifers, the evergreens, okay? And you want to pick the smallest ones that are available, and you want to dig out around them at about two times their spread. So if there are trees at like a one-foot spread, you want to kind of dig out about two feet and then dig in and underneath and clean off the roots, and you're going to be surprised at a couple things. One, it's going to be a lot harder to dig than you think it is. Because there's so many mature trees and there's a root net in there that's going to kind of blow you away. Number two, how deep the taproot of like an oak tree is when a tree's one foot tall. You're not going to get the whole root system out. So you're going to expose as much of the roots as you can if, it, if it's logistically doable. You know, that totally tearing it up. And then you're going to get a good, good sharp pair of pruners, very sharp, and where you can't get the roots out, prune them flush, move them to your new location, and plant them immediately. Do this when they're dormant. Do this in late fall. This is the best time to do it. Okay. Same thing with the evergreens, you know. but you might really, with some of those, find some real heavy root nets around them. It's amazing the hair root nets that form in a lot of these evergreen clumps where these young trees are coming up. That's one way to do it. Another way to do it would be 
go out in the early spring when they're starting to leaf out and the, the, the saplings from the previous year are just starting to come up. Right? So, like, that's when you look down and you see, like, this, these, these four leaves on a twig and it's a new oak tree. And there's, you can, sometimes you move the soil a little bit and you can still see the acorn. Those you can usually get your hands in and just pull up. Okay? And throw them in a pot take care of them through until the fall or put them in a bed. You know, basically you frame out like a raised garden bed, but build it up so it's about an 18-inch deep bed with really friable, loose stuff in it and pop them all in there just a couple inches apart from each other. And a 4 by 8 you can put literally a, almost a 1,000 trees in like that. And then that way when you're ready to move them, because that way you can take care of them, you can love on them, you can give them shade, you can put them on automatic watering, you know, you can, all of that stuff, right? When you're ready to plant them in the fall when they're dormant, they'll just pull up nice and nice and easy for you. And don't be afraid that they're going to tangle together. They come right apart. Like plant them in, in like a heavy, like sand, but a light, like if you use solid sand, it's going to like just be compacted and, and, and like it won't be able to breathe. So like a sand, soil, like expanded shale, like that kind of a mixture with some compost, that'll be really, really light. Um, and the coarser the sand in a situation like that, the better. Even uh, like a, a one big bag of, um, what is the word I'm looking for? Um, forget brain fart, perlite, right? So some perlite is a really great lightning agent and something like that. So that's another way that you can do it. Um, here's the issue. More so in the first method, but even with the second method, that tree will never be as strong as it could have been if it grew from a seed in the location it was going to live in. When you prune those roots off, they'll grow back, and they might turn into great trees. But when you pull those little saplings up, right, you're going to have a lot more of the original root system with them. Now, the other option would be immediately transplanting them, but I think you'll have a lot of them die. But if you can do anything to provide them shade and some, some moisture, your odds of them surviving grow up, and then they're free. So what I might do to make, if you wanted to make it as easy as possible, harvest them early, as early in the spring as you possibly can when the new ones are coming up. Pull them out. Go to a location you want a tree. Put five of them in. A couple inches apart. Somebody's going to live. If three people live, kill two of them. Like three people. If three trees live and you only want one, kill two of them. Wait a while though. Wait till they start to really get themselves established. Like that would be another way to do it. Um, and then another way to do this would simply be like, if you're talking about oaks, well, just go pick up acorns. Go pick up acorns, you know, and store them in, in moist soil. And when they start to, to, to put roots out, put them in the ground. And I mean, if that tree survives, it's going to be tough as nails because it's going to put its taproot down right where it belongs. It's never going to be malformed. It's going to be deep and it's going to be strong. And you might look at some of these other trees like, can you just collect seed? Uh, but all of those things will work. It's just a matter of, you know, how healthy the tree is going to be, what's your survival rate. But again, I would stick to no matter when you're doing it, the smaller saplings, the better. You're going to get more of the root system. The tree is less established. It's going to be less upset about being moved. And really try to provide some level of some sort of shading for that tree as it goes through its first year. Because it's, it's, think about the way saplings grow. They grow generally in an established forest and they grow really tall and skinny and they wait for a, like another, like a, 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 you know, a monarch of the forest to fall. 
And then, boom, they spring into that spot and they become the new monarch, right? The new patriarch, right? Or the new matriarch of the, of the forest. Or they, when, the, when a forest is emerging, there's an herbaceous layer of woods and that little seedling tree actually grows slower than the, the, the herbaceous layer. So it spends like its first season down in there protected and comes out. So the tree, I've seen saplings just burn up in the first summer if they're not, you know, given some kind of an additional care. So that's just one of the big things to think about there. With that, let's, uh, let's take another one. Hey, Jack. Uh, got a comment for you about investing in your children. Um, I was uh, listening to your episode uh, on Thursday about the call-ins. The gentleman asked about uh, what the little girl should do with her money, and you started talking about, you know, investing with silver um, for your children during their birthdays and whatnot. And so that got me thinking uh, something that I've been doing is getting a lifetime hunting and fishing license. I'm up in Tennessee, and before they hit three, it's $200. And I'm spending about 160 for a, a sportsman's license uh, every year. So it's a great way to invest in kids. If they use it once, it's essentially going to pay for itself. Um, and so that's just something that I, I've been doing. Additionally, I've got a uh, treasure chest, just like you said, uh, for each one of my kids. Just a small box that I keep in the safe, and I've been – You know, putting a, an ounce of silver here, an ounce of silver there, and on the when they when they're born, I buy a tenth ounce of gold, uh, silver eagle from the year of their birth. Just something to to give them, and then you know add in some cash from birthdays and things like that. And I also keep a note in there of where it all came from, so that they know um, who's given them things over the years. So anyway, hope you have a good one. Thanks. First on the sportsman's license, I guess that's like what we call a super combo license here in Texas. And we have saltwater, right? So we have a saltwater, freshwater, combo fishing license, all that type of stuff. Like all in, like the super combo license package, which is like everything hunting and fishing, your stamp endorsements for archery, saltwater, your red drum tag, upland game bird, migratory game bird, everything, everything, 68 bucks. Tennessee's expensive, man. That's that sounds pretty high, hundred fifty bucks. Um, I'm gonna like check into the whole, you know, like lifetime license for a kid thing and see what the price of that might be if they even do that here in Texas. But that's a deal. Um, like you said, if they go out, use it a couple times in their life, um, it's uh, it's paid for itself. A lot of states. For fishing, kids under 12 don't need a license. You need to check your local laws. And I think that was the case in Pennsylvania. I think it was under 16. Children under 16 did not need a fishing license. Uh, and then you had to be 12 to even go hunting to get a hunting license. Just So that was PA. I remember in Pennsylvania when a hunting license was 12 bucks, And I think a fishing license was 6 I have no idea what they are now. But a hunting license was 12 bucks. An archery tag was five fifty. A duck stamp was like five bucks or something like that, um, and uh, it was just it was so inexpensive you didn't even really think about it much as the the cost of of doing things. One hundred fifty bucks a year for you know hunting and fishing license. I can see why some people are starting to get bitchy about it. I was just having a conversation with somebody on the blog yesterday saying you know as far as the evils the government does through charging us to do things. You know, fishing game is something I think works out pretty well. I only pay if I participate, and I have to admit that they do a pretty good job. And at least here in Texas, they do not seem onerous. I've actually been in Texas since 1993, and I have never been asked to produce a fishing license. I've actually never been asked to produce a hunting license. 
I've only been asked for like sometimes when I've had meat processed for me for a tag for the deer uh, when they take the deer, but I've never been approached by a fish or game warden in the state of Texas. Now, most of my hunting's been done on private property, and that that solves a lot of that issue. So, Pennsylvania, routinely, I would run into to hunting with hunting running a wardens. Check your license, that type of thing. Will you get anything today? You know that type of thing. But um, Texas, just I never see the guys. It seems like they uh, they they act more like firemen here than policemen. They come when called. Like when someone needs them, they come do something instead of just going out looking to bother people, which I kind of like. And I think they do a pretty good job of game management. I think they do a pretty good job of setting limits. I, I I'm kind of okay with that. But on the kid thing, right? So like I think that's kind of cool. Um, you know, there's no guarantee that your kid will, will go hunting and fishing, but the fact that it's there means it's there. And uh, it's only going to get more expensive in the future, so that's pretty cool. And uh, I think another nice thing, it'd be hard for me to understand how that would ever not be valid if your child became a resident of another state but then came back to hunt or fish. Because non-resident hunting and fishing permits are extremely expensive in many states, and I can't imagine what that type of a license would be in Tennessee with it being 150 bucks for a resident. So, wow, okay. Uh, and then, like, the you know the treasure chest and all, that's something we've done with our grandkids. I think that's a great idea. But I think something that's even cooler is, like, so you're putting aside some things that maybe come from an uncle or an aunt or for, from you or because it was bought and done on their birthday and leaving, like a, like, a log in there. Like the 10th ounce of gold and the silver eagle of your birth year, those were put in there to celebrate your birth, you know, when you were born by your mom and dad, right? And I think this is something that, in a, in a way, addresses a huge problem that I think we're, we're beginning to see in America today. We've become so materialistic, but yet it's material that can solve the problem. And what I mean by that is kids today... I think, are feeling more and more disconnected from their parents and their prior generations than ever before. And they're feeling uncared for. And it's, it has a lot to do with the, you know, the two-income household. Mom and dad are both working. And when you get home, you're just freaking tired. I understand it. I used to be that guy. I get it. And you get home and like, I want to go play out. Oh, man, I just want to go to sleep. I want to have a, want to have a beer and I want to sit in my chair and I want to watch the news and be depressed about that. And it's better not to, but you can understand, like, that is what's happening in America. And we've also gotten to the point where money is just a thing. Like, kids don't seem to really value money. They just expect it to be there. Where it's something like a silver coin, or yes, even some money and stuff like that. When it's kind of held like that in trust for them. And as they get older and they, they, they look at that, you know what they think? People care about me. I'm valuable. See, we have kids today that are narcissistic, but they don't think they're valuable. They don't think they're worth anything. It is part of the, you know, everybody gets a trophy, and we can't blame the kid for that. We're the one that gave him the eighth place trophy, right? But, I mean, that's part of it. Like, we have, there's, there's teen suicide, and early 20 suicide rates today are higher than they've ever been in the history of this country. And if you think about the way things were during the Great Depression, talk about a reason to want to off yourself. But today, when we have, like, everything's great. I think Louis C.K. did a thing on some comedy show that he was on, like, as a guest, and he was like, you know, talking about like how incredible it is, and everybody bitches all the time. It's like, so to get here, I flew on an airplane. So I'm sitting in a chair in the sky. I'm sitting in a chair in the sky with access to the internet, and people are bitching about how hard it is today. 
Well, part of that is a disconnection from feeling actually valuable. When people tell you you're special your whole life and you get old enough to figure out that you're not really as special as everybody said, then you feel worthless. And I think this in one small way, this type of thing, reinforces to the person that some people were willing to invest in you. Not just give you, because you get a kid money for their birthday and they spend it, they forget about it in a week. Whatever they bought with it is probably lost under the couch in a couple days. It's plastic crap in the end. Now, I'm not against kids having toys and playing. I get it. I understand. I did when I was a kid. But this type of an investment in a child, where one day they pick up a silver bar, and I'm actually holding one from Golden State Mint in my hand right now. One troy ounce, nine 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 five silver. And they look at that. And then they look at their little log book, and it says, we bought this for you on your third birthday. And I'm 25. What does that mean to me? I mean, apart from, you know, if I'm if the kid's three right now, 25 years from now, what do you think an ounce of silver is going to be worth? Just the fact that I'm holding this, and it's been there, held and kept for me, and you've told me when it came into my life. And then they look through and they find like this old silver dollar, like a peace dollar, one of the most beautiful coins ever. You know, your Uncle Bob sent this to you on your fifth birthday. I put it in here for you. Kid may never even have met Uncle Bob, maybe more than once. Maybe, maybe Uncle Bob died by the time he was seven. Doesn't really remember Uncle Bob. But now that is tied. You see, like, so these are things that have value, so they're held on to. They're small, so you can keep them. Because right now, one of the things that's, I just read a story on this, like, baby boomers are freaked out because all of the shit that they've accumulated... And then they're downsizing from these four and five thousand foot McMansions as they go into their true retirement years. They go, I just can't keep up with the house, the yard, whatever. They go buy, you know, their little sixteen hundred square foot three bedroom house, and they have to get rid of all of their stuff, their collections of crap and thousands of thimbles or whatever. And they start, well, I'll, I'll give it to the family now, and like kids and relatives and grandkids don't want it. It's ending up in landfills. You can only send so much of that th stuff to thrift shops and stuff. Like, it's being discarded. They're seeing it for the hollow nothingness that it is. But a silver bar, a gold coin, things like that, they have lasting, tangible value. And at some point, that kid may say, well, you know what? I am going to exchange these ten silver bars for some money so that I can have something in my life. And it's not like that bar really is anything but a silver bar. The real value was being able to touch it and know that it sat there waiting for them. Because a bank account's just a number. It's something they. I'm sorry, but kids are feeling like they have coming to them. Oh, I have that money there. That's great. Yay, I'll go out and buy something with it. I'll spend it. I'll blow it. They don't get to touch it and feel it and understand. And when you look at kids and you think about all of the people, and if you tell their uncles and their aunts and stuff, Lay off the toys. You know, and a lot of you, if you already have kids that have this problem, just take a video camera when your house isn't cleaned up and there's toys everywhere and shoot a 30-second video of the kid's room and the playroom and the living room. Just walk through the house and then send the whole family, we don't need more toys, okay? Stop it! And then give them a couple sites where they could, you know, we'd like you to start on their birthday buying them an ounce of silver or a tenth of an ounce of gold or something like that. Or a couple ounces, whatever you want to do. Send them a picture so they understand, like, this is a real thing. 
and keep that log. That logbook is something I never thought of that. That's so freaking awesome and so freaking powerful. If you're doing this and you already have one of these, go back and try from memory to recreate it right now. Don't let, make that your weekend freaking project this weekend, man. That's awesome. That is so awesome. That's so awesome. And that is gonna, there's gonna be a kid someday because of this moment on this show that's gonna think like, man, I don't feel like anybody gave a shit. And they're gonna pull that box out and they're gonna go through it and they're gonna go, yeah, they did. That's pretty freaking awesome. That really is. And, uh, I, I believe that's gonna happen. I, I don't even think it's gonna happen like once. I think it's gonna happen a lot of times. And it's, it's a good case for investing in kids this way. You know, with that, if you like this show and you want to invest in us and the work that we do, a painless way to do that is when you're going to do your online shopping, just go to tspaz.com first. Go to tspaz.com, and from there you can click on over to Amazon and see their deals of the day is one thing you can do. And from there, no matter what you do, you're helping support the show and the work that we do. And remember, that now applies to people in the United States, Canada, and the United Kingdom, not just the U.S. market anymore. That's the only three that I will let me into right now this way, but I am in all three of them, so that's pretty cool. And uh, that means you guys across the pond or up north can help support the show, too. And the other thing you can do when you're there is you can take a look at our reviewed items. I do an, an item of the day review, and I've got to the point now where probably a couple times a week, it's not a new item. It's something I've reviewed before. I call them encores. I bring them back around, and I bring them back around for various reasons. In this case, because it's so damn good, it's so damn important, and they cut the price again, so it's even a better deal than it was before. This is a product by E-Tech City. E-Tech City is one of my favorite electronics manufacturers. They do some really cool stuff. Um, I, I just like what they do, and I love their support and their honesty, etc. And uh, this is a four-pack of LED lanterns. E-Tech City four-pack LED lanterns. These are little lanterns. When they're closed, they're about they're they're round, so they're bigger around, but height-wise, they're about the size of an iPhone. I mean, they're little, but they're really well built. Couple, three batteries go on the bottom. You grab little handles. You pull them. When you open them, they just come on. They have LEDs all around. They're really bright. You want the best part? The best part is you get four of them. Four of them with the batteries for $22.99. About $5.50 a piece. Four of them with the batteries for $22.99. Free shipping with Prime on Amazon. Let me tell you why I think you need these. These go in your blackout kit, right? This is when the lights go off and you, they're just a fantastic, just one in the center of a room, and it might not be like you can read a book anywhere in the room, but you can walk around the room without busting your toes and hurting yourself. You give one to Johnny, you give one to Janie, they're not scared anymore. They have a little uh, handle on them that kind of folds up. You take a little tiny hook that you won't even notice, paint it the same color as your roof, and put it up into the roof of some of the main rooms of your house. And when the lights go out, pull out your lanterns, open them up, and just hang them from up there. They'll give you about 12 hours of light from three freaking double A's. And did I mention they give you a set of batteries for each one with them for $22.99? I've seen stuff exactly like this advertised on like Fox News Channel and stuff. He's like, yeah, buddy, emergency strikes. You need light. And they're still like, we're selling this for $20. But if you order today, you'll get two. Just pay separate processing and handling. It's the same freaking product. I'm looking at it. They, they, this stuff's all made in China. 
You know, they're basically just cloning each other's stuff. They, a lot of times they're made in the same factory from the same tools and the same materials. They put different brands on them. That's fine. I care about the company standing behind them. Four of them for 23 bucks? Are you freaking kidding me? We keep one in the back of my Toyota 4Runner. Initially, I kept it back there because Toyota was stupid. Uh, so our, our, our last 4Runner, they had no light. So when you opened the hatch in the back, there was no light back there. You could turn the cargo light on in the front. You really couldn't see. So there was a nice little compartment in it, and I just stuck one of those lanterns in there. And whenever we needed to do something in the dark, I just pulled it out, and bam, it was there. Well, now they have lights, because somebody at Toyota went, Dude, we should have lights in one of the best vehicles on the road, uh, and, and decided to put lights back there. And I, when we got the new vehicle and we took all the stuff out of the old one, I just stuck it right back in. I'm like, lights can fail. They, and I'm like, you know what, I should put one of these in my truck. So I ended up getting another set of them. These are fantastic. I got one in my boat. I mean, it's the ability to have that light, boom, it's there. So check them out, and this is the biggest thing I like about these. So I wrote E-Tech City about them because I saw some one-star reviews, and people said, it arrived broken, it didn't work out of the box. And they sent me an email back, you could read the actual copy of it in the review today. But it basically said, listen, we sell thousands of these a week. One of the most popular items on Amazon for a reason. It's an electronic product that goes through the mail. Some of them will get busted, broke, have a connection, fail. If, we, if, if somebody gets one of our lanterns and it's not working the way it's supposed to, all they have to do is tell us we just send them a replacement, no questions asked. And as far as that, the only and they have a one-year warranty, and the only time we hear from somebody is when they first get them. If they arrive there without being damaged in shipment, we never hear from them again. That's honesty. That's blunt honesty. Look, man, we're making a, you know, we're making a $5 product. And we're selling thousands of them. It's electronic. Some of them are going to have problems. We correct it. We make it right. Damn solid. Great product. Check it out. Again, E-Tech City, uh, four-pack of LED lanterns. Collapsible, compact, great product. Belongs in your preps. So check them out today. Next up, let's talk about today's song of the day. This is actually one of my all-time favorite songs. It's one of my all-time favorite guys. Um, it... It, 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 I got, the song got a little worn on me when Chevrolet took a hold of it and put it in every one of their commercials. It's Bob Seger, Like a Rock. Um, but I've always loved this song. I, I like Bob Seger, man. I have, a, I have a channel on Pandora that I've built built around Bob Seger. Everybody listening to it is like, man, that's that channel styled in, man. And it's not just it's lots of different people, but this is a great branch-off point. So I love Bob Seger and the Silver Bullet Band. Uh, this song, you know... Um, John Adams sent me a link to Song Facts, and I'm not going to read from it because I really don't need to, but one of the things that was on there that, uh, that, that Bob said was, I'm sure this song doesn't mean as much to someone in their 40s as it means to someone in their 20s, though it's really about that time in your life when you are in your 20s, right? And uh, yeah, yeah, definitely. But what this song's about is how incredibly gifted we are when we're 18, 19, 20 years old. Strong, solid like a rock, built well. In, be able, able to, to do things that, like if we do them when we're 40, like you could still do some of them, but then you hurt for a week, right? And, and, and you know, standing for what was right, being willing to fight if you had to, doing what you believed in, and, and but being dead-ass broke. And see, at that point in your life where you're thinking is, man, I got to be like these people ahead of me. I got to work hard. I got to... You know, get my career going or whatever it is. 
But, but the reality is, those are like the best years of your life, and you just don't know it. There's an old saying, youth is wasted on the young. And I think there's some, some truth in that. And there's that one line in this song, and like I just turned 45 yesterday, right? And as you get older, I think this, the, the line really does hit you. 20 years now, where'd they go? Bam. 20 years. I don't know. I don't know where they went, you know? And I think one of the reasons I'm happy in my life, even though those 25, 27 years, because he starts at 18, right? So 27 years, where'd they go? Why I'm okay with this, I know where they went. They went into building a life, a family that's expanded to include grandchildren, a career, multiple businesses. I know where they went. And I think the time was well spent building an incredible relationship with a great wife, all of those things. But I think the message of this song really isn't about you know the difference between being 18 and 38, which is actually, I guess, the spread that would, you would use by the lyrics in this song. It's about the concept of making the most of what you have in the now. So that we're not looking back on, gee, I wish I was there. Because this is what I try to tell people all the time that are worried about getting older and stuff like that. Listen, 20 years from now, You're going to wish you were where you are today. So you can sit around today bitching and whining and complaining that you don't have the life ahead of you, the physicality, the looks, whatever it is that you had 20 years ago. Or you can be grateful for what you have freaking today so that you're not sitting around 20 years from now lamenting that and realizing you pissed it away and didn't do the most you could with it. That's, to me like a rock. I will never be in the physical condition I was in when I was in my early 20s and I had just come out of the United States Army. Like, people that say, like, I'm 50 today and I'm in the best shape of my life. Then you were in shitty shape when you were 20 years old. That's all I can say. You had to be a fat, lazy slob when you were 20 if you're really in the best shape of your life at 45. You, you really must have been. Because you're not. You're not. Tests have been done. They've taken kids off of couches eating Cheetos and compared them to, to like guys that work out every day that are in their late 40s, and the kids kill them. The kids kill them in, the, in that, you know, like cardiac, cardio, all that shit. They kill them. Unless they're slovenly pigs. That was a gift you were given. Hope you did something good with it. And if you're in great shape at 45, 50, whatever, good. Good. Don't sit around lamenting the past. Don't worry about the past. Worry about the present, and no matter where you are in your walk, walk, be like a rock. With that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Stood there boldly, sweating in the sun. Felt like a million, felt like number one. The height of summer. I'd never felt that strong like a rock I was 18 didn't have a care working for peanuts not a dime to spare But I was leaning solid everywhere like a rock 
hands were steady, my eyes were clear and bright. My walk had purpose, my steps were quick and light. And I held firm to what I felt was right, like a rock. Sometimes where they've gone, and sometimes late at night, oh, when I'm bathed in the firelight, the moon comes calling a ghostly way, and I recall. I recall like a 